Jay Haig is uh, no stranger to this congregation. He's preached here many times before. He leads a city, actually it's a, it's a much wider uh, ministry, but it's based in Jacksonville, a ministry called Living Without Lust. There's a brief description of it in the bulletin, and um, I'd like to have him come through and preach. He's got a gift for preaching, and his ministry is important to the men of this city. So I want to say a prayer for you, Jay, and then I'm going to give you the pulpit. Lord, I'm grateful for my friend Jay. I'm thankful for his ministry and the mission that you've given him and his preaching gift. Lord, I ask that you would anoint his words this morning, that you'd speak to each one of us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Get this out of your way. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be with you all again. I wonder if I were to ask you what the most comprehensive view in the Scripture is of God's plan for humanity. I wonder what you would say. You might say it's the salvation of the world. You might say it's the Great Commission or some other worthy thing. And if you did, you would not be far from the truth. But actually, we don't have to wonder because we're told. It's in the first chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians as Paul writes in a sentence that sort of tumbles out of his heart as he manifests this idea of his God's plan uh, for the world. He says... What God's plan is, is, quote, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Can you grasp that? And so the next question becomes, as we see God's plan and we see the world, how are we doing? And most people would say, as you've all heard in private conversations, not very well. Whether we look at the political divisions around us, views on vaccines, sexual identity, gun ownership, Supreme Court decisions, and a whole lot of other things, we are perhaps, as one commentator described, more divided than at any time since the Civil War. To make matters worse, Social media only exacerbates the problem by doing two dangerous things to us weak human beings. First, it ushers us into echo chambers and cul-de-sacs of confirmation bias where we expect everyone to agree with us. And secondly, it urges us to lob worldview bombs at others who disagree. So when we set up social media as a primary way of relating, we know what we're going to get. If life is set up as a hockey game, we know we're going to get fights. If life is set up as social media, we know we're going to get conflict. But if we take the worldview of James, the epistle we just read, we cannot look to the outward world to solve our problems. We cannot look to politics. We cannot look to the culture. Instead, he says, we must look inward. And James outlines in our chapter four today four attitudes that undermine the purpose of God for unity, not just individually, but collectively. I'm gonna call them the four Ds. The first D is dissipation, or the wasteful and destructive use of passion and desire. When I was with you before, I talked about passion and desire being an indescribable gift of God that our enemy hates because it reflects the creativity of a creator God. So in James 1 through 3, chapter 4, 1 through 3, he writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions 
are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend, you on your, spend it on your passions. Don't you like the blunt expression of James? Pretty challenging stuff. Notice James uses words describing public conduct, words like quarrels, fights, wars, and murder. Those are all things we can observe in human conduct. But he connects them with inner attitudes like passion, desire, and covetousness. Furthermore, James tells us that there is a direct link between these wayward drives and our prayer life. Unchecked or unconfessed, these desires will lead us either to stop praying because in praying we might encounter somebody who has a disagreement with where, where we're going, or to a prayer life that's nothing more than willful, self-centered grasping. According to James, a spirituality powered by self-will and self-centeredness can never promote godliness, which is exactly the point Jesus makes in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector to illustrate the point. So as many of you know, uh, I am in a fellowship of lust addicts who follow a 12-step program. One of the first things all lust addicts must accept is that we are the problem. In the last century, the Times of London ran a poll about what was wrong with the world, and people wrote in, and they said it's war, it's crime, it's hate, it's whatever. G.K. Chesterton wrote in the following letter, Dear Sirs, I am, sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. As Bill W., the founder of AA, wrote, we do not have the luxury of confessing other people's sins. A man once went to a 12-step meeting and said, I learned two things. There is a God, and I'm not him. Bill W. also said, any life run by self-will cannot possibly be happy. This is the force, the passion, the desire that James is confronting directly here. Maybe that was why the book of James was the most popular book of the Bible for the early AAs. The desire to be right will lead us into many wrongs, the least of which is quarreling, fighting, and disunity. A fellow addict was once said to me, he said, Jay, you can be right or you can be happy, but you can't be both. Until we shine the light on this willfulness and misuse of desire, None of us can be a force for unity and cooperate with this magnificent purpose of God. Second D is disloyalty. James writes, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that has been made to dwell in us? You see, James is saying there's different kinds of adultery here. Some adultery is physical, but there's also spiritual adultery. There's an entire book of the Old Testament, the book of Hosea, that is written on this very theme. Jesus talks about it also in Matthew 5, 27, 28, when he says the real problem is not pornography, it's lust. The real problem is not adultery, it's lust. It's a spiritual problem. 
This kind of spiritual adultery can be attempting to cozy up to the world and to live by its standards, either to gain some benefit for ourselves, as evangelicals have often fallen into the trap of doing, or currying favor with the cultural despisers of Christianity, as the mainline denominations have done. We can also be tempted to fight spiritual battles with worldly methods. This could mean to put all of our eggs in arguments, political coercion, money, or power to establish what we believe are kingdom goals. Often these things end up alienating or wounding people unnecessarily. So these are not easy things to discern in the heat of daily living. But this is why Paul warned that, quote, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We must remember that the world will always try to squeeze us into its mold. As Paul reminds Timothy, the aim of the soldier is to please the one who enlisted him. To further his purpose, we must always remember to whom we belong and ultimately whom we must please. The third enemy of unity is disintegration. The leading cause of disintegration today in the world is broken relationships. James speaks directly to this problem. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So we cannot say we are working for God's ultimate purpose of unity when our relationships are falling apart. But why do they fall apart? Most advice columns in the paper, by the way, deal with this subject more than any other, relationships falling apart. They usually fall apart when one person in the relationship decides that they are going to judge the other one. We can either do this silent, silently by distancing ourselves. This is the passive-aggressive approach, which sometimes leaves the other party saying, I wonder what happened. Or we can do it verbally by deciding the other person needs above everything else a piece of our mind. More than any other time that I'm aware of in my 71 years, parents and children are alienated over politics. But it also applies to coworkers, church members, and old friends, and these relationships often founder when one person consciously or unconsciously decides to do a dangerous thing, to resign as a brother, and this is according to James, to resign as a brother and doer of the law and become a judge. James says, says we have to decide to be one thing or the other. We can't do both. We either must become a judge, in which case we cannot be a brother, or we become a brother, in which, which case we cannot be a judge. And if we become a judge, we are attempting the foolishly impossible to play God in the life of another human being. To the extent my wife and I today have good relationships She's sitting right down there with our grown children. It's because we keep each other from voicing our opinions to them unless we are asked, and we're rarely asked. <laughs> the fourth temptation to disunity is distraction. 
We could also call it presumption, planning the future as if we were in charge and knew exactly how things are going to go. James writes, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do it and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We fail to do the right thing often because our selfish concerns take first place and drown out the voice of God and the voice of conscience. We stop living dependently and start living autonomously. And as a result, we find ourselves off course. It is said that we live in an age of distraction. Our multiple devices have programmed us to be constantly interrupted, entertained, and stimulated to the point that we often lose focus on what is truly important. But both James and Jesus point us to a more dangerous distraction, a life that is based not in God and our connection with Jesus, but in the self-will of our own worldly plans and desires and the little kingdoms they can seduce us to build. James says if we make plans to go here and there and override the conviction and direction of the Holy Spirit, if we refuse to take time to wait on him and seek counsel from trusted sources, we can find ourselves way off course. We become self-made people who worship our creator. Dissipation, disloyalty, disintegration, distraction. These are the little foxes that spoil the vineyard, separate us from others, and ultimately will derail us from our destiny of becoming people of unity, participating fully in God's plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth. But the good news is that it doesn't have to be this way. The gospel of Jesus has the power to catch us up into a different story, one where each conversation, each relationship, each venture can be a powerful step toward the reconciliation of all things. But how do we get there? What can give us the confidence to move forward with hope? James tells us some important truths to hold on to as we sow seeds of unity rather than division. Number one, the gospel causes us to believe and feel in our deepest bones how much God loves us and desires intimacy with us. James asked this question of each of us in verse five, and it's a wonderful question. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? That's lover language. To yearn over the spirit of another is lover language, and God yearns over you. This lover language demonstrates God's passionate interest in each and every one of us, the one who walks with us, in our present and guarantees our future. John Donne, the famous poet and Anglican clergyman wrote in his poem, Batter My Heart, which the words seem very embarrassing almost to 21st century Christians. He writes, take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you enthrall me shall never be free, nor ever chaste except you ravish me. 
The God who yearns for us, the lover of our souls, has walked in our direction, sending Jesus to pay the full and final price for our sin and interceding before the Father day and night for whatever needs we may have, giving us the Holy Spirit as the sign and seal of our hope. These are acts of God that tell us he is fully invested in bringing this hope to pass. We matter more than we will ever know. So if you're discouraged today, stay in the game. Keep leaning forward for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You are more prized and cherished than you know, and the good you can bring to others is essential to the eternal purposes of God. He longs to be your deepest friend and to use you in the world today, right here, right now. But there's more good news. And that news is he gives grace to the humble. Isn't our God amazing? When we fall down or are down or uh, our relationships are strained or broken, he does not judge or withdraw his presence. He gives more grace, says James. He's got plenty for everyone. When the wine runs out, he gives better wine. When the prodigal comes home hoping to catch on as a hired servant, he kills the fatted calf and starts a party. That's our God. Maybe you have made some mistakes. I have made more than my share. Perhaps you have an adult child that won't talk to you because of your politics. God can give you the grace to see your part and apologize for it. He can restore anything, no matter how broken. All it takes is willingness and one more thing, humility. He gives grace to the humble. If you ask God to make you humble, that is a prayer he is more than willing to answer. He will show you how to walk in humility, to be, as Isaiah says, a repairer of the breach, a restorer of the streets to dwell in. Thirdly and lastly, in order to come into unity with God's purposes, we may need an attitude adjustment. As we minister to sexually addicted men, we have discovered that there's really only one obstacle to recovery for them, and it is this, the refusal to acknowledge and repair the wounds we have inflicted on ourselves, our spouses, and our families. That's it, refusal. A dismissive attitude puts us beyond the realm of hope. When we say things like, it's not so bad, or I didn't hurt anyone, or everyone is doing it, we remain in denial. Sometimes we have to face the harsh reality before healing is possible. That is why James uses such direct and seemingly harsh words. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You see, we want to get to the end. We want to get to the he will exalt you part. We would prefer happiness when God has joy in mind. But the only way up is down. The only way to healing is through pain. Grace is not a pillow. It's a diving board into the pool of life and it takes courage to dive in. Addicts and others who have caused pain must face it, correct it, make amends, and live a new life. 
All these action steps are outlined by James. Resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. And then the most striking words, he essentially says, go ahead and be miserable for a while. Cry, mourn, weep. Spend some time in the house of mourning. It's a sign of healing. God is in it. So I say to you humbly, if you have a problem with internet porn, you will not solve it by yourself. Bring it out into the light. Tell a trusted friend. Join with others who are recovering from the same thing. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Get help. And remember, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So if you want to participate in the unity that God is sure to bring to the face of the earth, it will cost you something. It will cost you your dissipation, your disloyalty, your disintegration in relationships, and your distraction. But what you will discover is so much greater and so priceless that you will never look back. You will become true partners with God in this great work. You see, unity and anointing work hand and glove for the purposes of God. The second shortest psalm says it best. Behold how good and precious it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Please play with me. Father, we thank you for telling us through James that unity begins with us. It begins at home, it begins in family relationships, in relationships with those we know. Save us from these wayward paths that James puts his finger on. Help us to dive deeply into your grace and into your presence in our lives, to strengthen our connections with you and our unconditional love for those around us so that we might truly be those people who repair the breach, who restore the streets to dwell in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.